It is with much regret that I must announce to you, our listeners, that the Temp Fans podcast is not exclusively about the fall. I did my best, but after six episodes, we've run out of records. What about the Peel Sessions box set? I pleaded to Ewan. The countless EPs over which we ran roughshod. All those bootleg live recordings. The answer was a firm no. We are temporary fandoms. And the time must come when we move on to other artists. And that's what we're doing today. But we do have a special treat lined up for all those full fans who've stuck around. So as you know, we listen to complete discographies in chronological order. And then we talk about the experience. If you follow the links in our show notes, you can find a version on Spotify that comes with sample tunes from each album under discussion. We can be found on the Beat Rehab website and at tempfans.com, as well as all the other places where podcast landfill accumulates, but you already knew that. Let's meet the guests and get on with today's episode on Arthur Lee's psychedelic rock legends, Love. Hello there, welcome to episode 21, Nailed It, of Temporary Fandoms. Uh, I'm Ewan. And I'm Nick. And, well, we're back. Um, and we are no longer doing the fall. Um, I feel that my music collection has totally changed after the five weeks I spent listening to the entire discography for the first time. Um, as we record this, we are currently number six in the slightly niche Apple podcast GB music slash music history. Take that, Bob Dylan. We just pipped you. Um, if you want us to stay there, please, I know, review us. I mean, there's lots of you who listen and not a lot of you who review. If you could spend five seconds of your time just wherever you find this, just clicking the five stars, the five stars, that would be amazing. If you want to type something about how amazing Nick is, brilliant. Also, um, there is the Spotify playlist as well. We are aware it's not as easy to find if you just search for us on Spotify. So either go to tempfans.com, click the little link uh, button in the episode, uh, Beat Rehab, or the Instagram page that we have. All of those things have links to the playlist. If not, carry on listening in your normal way and feel free to stop the pod and go off and listen to albums uh, in their entirety and be, as we want you to be, a, a, at least a temporary fan um, and have that temporary fandom that we do when we go through all the albums. Um, before I get to today's guests, I'm going to read a long list of names who are the people who have come on the pod and have massively helped us over this first year. That's Zoe Von Hess, John Tanzi, Aaron Troy White, Brendan Quigley, Chris Whitby, Emma McDermott, Marianne Powell, Cy Sharp, Ben Zimmer, uh, Lyle Wagonak, Stephen Miller, Jonathan Fisher, Jesse Darnow, Jeffrey Lewis, William Shun, Scott Donald, John Henderson, Fliss Kitson, Joe Mitchell, James Kennedy, Mike Plowman, Cherie Amore, Tansy McNally and featuring uh, Emily Baldoni, who is coming on again for the fourth time. Emily, how are you? I'm good. And I'm, I'm actually reminded now that you mentioned that this is the fourth time that I've been on it last time. I think you banished me from the podcast. I think you kicked me out, Ewan, because I didn't, I didn't like one of those later Spoon albums. Don't worry about it. There's, there's a lot of stuff I don't like. I mean, Nick, Nick's incredulous looks at me have been keeping me going throughout lockdowns. Um, also joining us, we have half of the Giddy Pop Pod podcast and um, 
Is that correct, Gavin? The giddy carousel of pop, yes, sir. Giddy carousel of pop. pop. I, I, my lips are all tongue-tied. I've been moving <laughs> out today. Um, which is a sort of, what, Smash Hits pod? Yeah, it's the nation's favourite Smash Hits podcast. How many are there? We may be in a small field of one, but <laughs> we're still the nation's favourites. Fantastic. And, and also joining us, um, well, I, I feel Nick is trolling me at this point. We spent a year um, building up to this... Oh, fine. We'll get around to doing the, Nick will do the fall at some point. We'll do the fall at some point. And then we spent six episodes doing the fall. Nick was really happy. Uh, Christmases were all, all, all came in at once. And after that, I thought, brilliant. We're, we're no longer going to be doing anything about the fall. So, so joining us is, is author of Leave the Capital and Have a Bleeding Guest, uh, drummer with uh, the fall, basically. Hello, Paul Hanley. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Yeah. Good evening. Thank nice you. to see everybody. Excellent. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, I've been talking a lot, so we're going to keep this relatively brief now. Um, we're going to hand you over, as usual, to the curator, um, and it is Emily Baldoni. In the first episode, you're going to hear four albums being discussed. Emily, which are those? So those first four are going to be the self-titled debut um, from 1966, uh, followed by Decapo, Forever Changes and For Sale, or For Sale, depending on how you decide to pronounce it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So you will be hearing from Emily, well, after this. Hello, Temp fans. In this episode, I'm going to be taking you through the sometimes folky, often psychedelic, and occasionally harpsichord-inflected discography of the band Love. Love has the blessing and the curse of being incredibly well-known for their 1967 album Forever Changes. I say both a blessing and a curse because, over the years, Forever Changes has received critical accolades to the point where you might be tempted to accuse it of being a bit of a sacred cow. In this particular case, I think a lot of the hype is deserved. Forever Changes is a real pinnacle of Baroque psychedelia. But the unfortunate thing about this version of the story is that a lot of the rest of Love's output tends to get overshadowed as a result. You can call me an overzealous fan, but my main point is, Forever Changes is great, but if you only listen to Forever Changes, you're missing out on a lot. So, over the next little while, I hope you'll follow along with me in delving into the fuller story of Love. And that story really has to start with Arthur Lee because Arthur Lee, as the singer and primary songwriter of the band, as well as the only constant member across all eight studio albums, is really the heart and soul of love. Arthur Lee was born in Memphis in 1945, the son of a jazz musician and a school teacher. Following his parents' separation in the early 1950s, Lee and his mother moved to Los Angeles, eventually settling in the West Adams neighborhood. In the early 60s, Lee started performing and recording with bands under several different names in LA, he also wrote and produced a single called My Diary for Rosalie Brooks, which has the distinction of being one of the first recordings to feature a then-unknown Jimi Hendrix on guitar. Lee and Hendrix, by the way, eventually became friends, but the relationship was always a complicated one. For example, Lee would later claim that Hendrix copied elements of his look and dress style. In 1965, Lee and guitarist Johnny Eccles, who was another Memphis to LA transplant and Lee's childhood friend, formed a band called The Grassroots, along with singer and guitarist Brian McLean, who had the added notoriety of having been a roadie for the birds. Brian would later claim, quote, 
I think Arthur let me join more for who I knew and what I could do. This initial lineup was rounded out by da drummer Dan Conka and bassist Johnny Fleckenstein. But the name was apparently good, too good to last. Another LA band started calling themselves the Grassroots, and in response, Lee changed the name of his own group to Love. The group had become well known in the LA club scene for their definitely loud shows. And the fact that the band was racially diverse was also an unusual quality in the American rock scene at the time. Arthur Lee and Johnny Eccles were both black, while Dan Conka and Johnny Fleckenstein were white, as were Alvin Snoopy Fischer, who soon replaced Conka on the drums, and Ken Forsey, who would replace Fleckenstein on the bass. By the time the group started recording their first album in early 1966, the whole band was living together in a dilapidated old Hollywood mansion nicknamed The Castle, which, by the way, is featured in the artwork for the first and second albums and lends its name to a song on DeCapo. As a side note, some sources on the ahem internets uh, claim that The Castle was once owned by Bela Lugosi. From what I can tell, that appears to be a bit of an urban legend, but I still kind of like to believe that it's true. Arthur Lee and Brian McLean were both heavily into the birds at the time, and you can definitely hear that influence on the first album, which is very much in that folk rock vein. In many ways, it's more straightforward than their later output, but nonetheless, I think it's still pretty great from start to finish, though I do tend to prefer the tracks where they diverge a little bit from the birdsy folk rock template. My Little Red Book, which opens the album with its nice kind of mean bass line and Lee's ragged vocals, is one of my favorite love tracks. It wasn't actually written by Love, it's actually a cover of a Burt Bacharach tune, but Love gave the track a much more garagey vibe than the previous version, which had been recorded in a much more kind of staid style by Manfred Mann. Can't Explain is another favorite. I've always loved Arthur Lee's repeated exclamation on that one. One day you'll wake up in the morning and find your poor self dead. I mean, it's a feeling everyone can empathize with, right? Following the self-titled album, Love next returned to the studio in June 1966 to record Seven and Seven Is, a proto-punk explosion of a track that ended up being the group's highest charting single. It peaked at number 33 on Billboard. Lee wrote it about a high school sweetheart with whom he shared a birthday, March 7. The song features a frantic, unrelenting drum part that made it, apparently, a real challenge to record. It took over 40 takes, with Lee and regular drummer Snoopy trading off the drum part intermittently in an attempt to keep up with the song's breakneck pace. Producer Jack Holtzman later said of the session, I went into the studio and it was mayhem. It was difficult to record, it was difficult to listen to in the studio, and it was blessedly short. When you recover from your amazement at the song's sheer kickassery, I encourage you to lend an ear to the lyrics, which are also, I think, appropriately nuts. For example, take this couplet. If I don't start crying, it's because that I have got no eyes. My father's in the fireplace and my dog lies hypnotized. The rest of what would become DeCapo was recorded in September and October of 1966. The lineup began to expand, signaling the advent of a broader soundscape for the band. By this point, TJ Cantrelli had been added on saxophone and flute, and Michael Stewart Ware took over the drums, allowing poor Snoopy to move over to the harpsichord. 
In contrast to the debut album's relatively straight-ahead folk rock, the first side of DiCapo features complicated and sometimes ornate arrangements that really point the way towards the vein of Baroque psychedelia that the band would continue to mine on Forever Changes. Meanwhile, tensions were growing between Lee and McLean, who wanted more of his songs included. Orange Skies was the only track that was written by McLean that made it onto DiCapo, and similarly, on the debut album, only one McLean track, Softly to Me, had made it on. There was certainly a creative tension between McLean and Lee during this period. While the two were friends, there was also an element of rivalry between them, and when it came right down to it, even at this early stage, it was Arthur Lee's band, and he made the final decisions. Beyond Arthur, it seems that other bandmates, such as at least Johnny Eccles, also questioned whether McLean's softer style really fit in with the band's sound. In spite of those growing tensions underlying the recording, though, I think this is a fantastic album, with one big caveat, which I will say more about in a minute. If you ask me, the first side is nearly perfect. I just love the crazy harpsichord meets garage waltz of Stephanie Knows Who, which was, by the way, apparently written about a woman who was dating Lee when the song was composed, but was with McLean by the time it was recorded. Like I said, there was rivalry along several dimensions between the two of them. The songs on DiCapo have an incredible variety. In addition to the furious, garagey onslaught of Seven and Seven Is, which, as you can probably already tell, I'm a big fan of, other parts of the album involve ornate and delicate arrangements that incorporate elements of jazz rock and baroque pop. Even a song like The Castle, which some might dismiss as a throwaway, has an instrumental section that starts around 110, which, with its intricate interplay of guitar and harpsichord, is really kind of marvelous. But the elephant in the room, and in my opinion, the big reason that people don't talk about DiCapo in the same glowing terms as Forever Changes, is Revelation, which, clocking in at 18 minutes, takes up all of side two. The track apparently came out of Love's live shows, which were known, among other things, for featuring extended improvisations that gave each band member a moment to shine. According to Johnny Eccles, Love played Revelation at pretty much every show, and they were playing pretty regularly at the time. And the song would get standing ovations. But when the band tried to take that live improvisational energy and bring it into the studio, something just didn't translate. Even the band members themselves seemed to acknowledge that the experiment of devoting an entire side to a single track was a failed one. On the album, it comes off as meandering, self-indulgent, and a bit of a throwaway, granted an 18-minute throwaway. It's really a shame, though, because if you remove that track, it's really a perfect little psychedelic jewel box of an album. <laughs> 